Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and today uh, we have a show that I think is, I hope, going to be interesting. It is a concept that I had in mind from kind of the very beginning when we launched the show, because um, in my position in North Carolina here, I'm aware of some of the happenings at the University of North Carolina. Uh, and the more I learned about sort of history of um, impropriety in all sorts of ways at the institution, the more I kind of have come to feel that it is exemplary of um, the broader system. It is a microcosm of sorts of what happens in college sport more generally. And so I wanted to invite onto the show two of the folks who have really done some of the most important work exposing, for lack of a better word, some of the realities of what goes on in big time college sports through uh, some of the revelations that have come out at the University of North Carolina. And those folks are Jay Smith, who's a professor at the university, and Ted Tatos, who has done a ton of work recently pouring through documents that the university had to publish online as part of a, um, a general records dump of 2 million documents. Uh, and he poured through those documents and, and came to some pretty disturbing findings. Um, now, just in terms of full disclosure, I should note that um, in the course of uh, Ted's work uh, and sort of the dissemination of that work uh, through um, the publication, particularly of a piece through The Athletic and uh, documentaries that The Athletic also put together, um, there was a lot of backlash to Ted's work. And so Jay and I were two of the leading signatories on a letter um, supporting the work that Ted had done and also calling for uh, greater transparency in terms of some of the findings that he was highlighting in that report. Um, I will link that letter in the show notes so you have a sense of it. but. Um, just wanted everyone to be uh, clear that there is, of course, uh, a pre-existing relationship between me and those folks who I am talking to today. But I think this is a good show, and I hope you enjoy. J. M. Smith is Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, where he teaches on early modern France and big-time college sports and rights of athletes. He is the author of four books, including most recently with Mary Willingham, Cheat It, The UNC Scandal, The Education of Athletes, and The Future of Big-Time College Sports. Jay, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. We're also joined by Ted T Tatos. Ted is a testifying expert and consultant with Econ One Research, specializing in quantitative economic analysis and antitrust, and former director of empirical analytics in the Department of Economics at the University of Utah, where he continues to teach as an adjunct professor. He is also associate economics editor of the Antitrust Bulletin. Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you both on. Um, and before we get it, there's so much I want to talk about. But before we get into that, um, we're on different. We're kind of all at different ends of the country here. I'm I'm close to Jay, but we're far from you, Ted. So I'm curious, um, how has the pandemic been treating you both in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Salt Lake City, Utah? Uh, maybe starting with you, Jay. Well, um, so far so good here in my own home, at least. 
my wife is a nurse practitioner in a Duke clinic, though it's though it's a cardiology clinic, and she doesn't have a lot of direct contact with COVID patients. So we're hoping that she will continue to 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 avoid direct contact with the virus. But you know, in general, things are fine, as you know, Nathan. The state, the state has chosen as most states have i guess to to open up and uh, and i i just noticed about an hour ago that uh, we we had north carolina had its its highest uh, um, number of new cases yesterday um, so you know there there are reasons to be concerned obviously but here here in the smith household we're doing fine Oh, that's that's good to hear. Uh, I have to say that I'm actually currently feeling worse than ever, <laughs> thanks to that information you've just shared. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> thanks for exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> um, Ted, how about you? Well, uh, so far, uh, uh, I suppose so good. Um, uh, as as uh, as good as it can be in the middle of a pandemic. Um, Utah is another state that has chosen to open things up and uh um i think uh just as uh north carolina did today uh, utah uh, had its highest number of uh, positive cases uh, so uh you know um not not a whole lot of uh uh cause for optimism but uh uh you know yeah. doom sparrow sparrow i suppose Right. I mean, look, every day is another reason why I, I look longingly up at Canada. Um, you know, that's, that's another story. Um, they, they haven't done a great job, mind you, but I'm just telling you, at least you got a little bit more security yeah. in terms of how the state is managing things. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, um, speaking of how a state is managing things, um, it's time to talk a little bit about uh, public education in the state of North Carolina. Uh, and uh, you know, it's actually not that I would say, and I don't think any of us really think that the state of North Carolina and specifically the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill are fundamentally exceptional within the system of U.S. higher education and college sports in the United States. However, because of events over the last decade plus, we have a lot of information about how sports and other affairs are conducted at the University of North Carolina. And so I think that provides us with a little bit, bit of a window into the inner workings we don't often have access to. And that's why I wanted to bring you both together to really get um, a, as clear a picture as possible as, of what has happened at UNC so that we can kind of get a sense of um, what I always like to kind of do is kind of pull back the curtain on what's really happening in sort of these sites of labor in sport. Um, and of course, we're always talking or frequently talking about college sport in this show. And I think that UNC teaches us so many lessons about it. So in order to get into that, um, I want to start with the work that Jay has done um, in his book, Cheated, uh, uh, in his course, uh, the experiences he had, basically to break down for us what has happened at the University of North Carolina. There is an infamous cheating scandal, but a lot of people don't really know what that means, what actually happened. Can you kind of fill us in, Jay? Sure. Though I, I, I just want to start by uh, reaffirming your, your first big point, which is that 
I really don't believe that UNC is unique. Uh, I suspect that if you if you could peel back the lid on what's going on at the University of Alabama or Ohio State or Oregon or Florida State or any big time sports university, you would find similarly ugly things as as we have found at North Carolina. So I mean. Um, what makes the North Carolina case so valuable, as you've said, is, is not that it's, it was a uniquely corrupt institution. It's that it, it provides a unique perspective on the corruption of big time college sports because so much is available. Uh, the, the corruption has become so transparent thanks to you know, so many, a succession of reports, including the Weinstein Report, um, the book that Mary Willingham and I did, and uh, the, the, the work that Ted Tados has done. We know so much about UNC that um, it's uniquely valuable for that reason. But basically what happened at UNC was that in the late 1980s, I, I think, you know, at least Mary Willingham and I and she did, confidently assert that it's in the late 1980s that the problems really began. In the late 1980s, the men's basketball program began recruiting to UNC extremely weak students, students whose board scores and high school GPAs would not have predicted that they would do well at UNC. Or, or, or at any prestigious university. And in the Department of African and Afro-American Studies, uh, you know, great irony here, um, there was a staff person, an administrative assistant, the assistant to the chair of the department, who incidentally, it's, it's not uh, irrelevant here, she had a, a relationship with a former basketball player uh, who, who played on, uh, on the team with Michael Jordan, in fact, in the early and mid-1980s. Um, this person, Debbie Crowder, took an interest in these, these students who were struggling so, and she persuaded, it seems, it, 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 the, much circumstantial evidence suggests that she persuaded the chair of the department, who was also sympathetic toward these students, to offer them independent studies courses where they could earn good grades for doing, one would guess, one surmises, uh, very little academic work. Um, and from that, you know, from that small acorn, uh, a, a large tree developed over the course of the 1990s. Debbie Crowder in that department uh, offered independent studies courses off the books, essentially, and scheduled other courses, seeming lecture courses, regular lecture courses, which no one ever had to attend in which very little written work was performed. 
for basketball players and other athletes eventually. This word got around pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, in a, in, in a period of three, four years, um, what had been a, a small experiment to help a handful of really weak students on the men's basketball team became a system designed to help all athletes, whether they were weak students or not, all athletes who wanted free time, who wanted relief from their academic schedules, who weren't particularly interested in their, in their academic work and wanted to focus on sports. You know, by the end of the 1990s, hundreds of students were signing up for all of these courses. And the Weinstein Report, which came out in 2014, shows that something like 3,000 or so uh, student enrollments were were funneled through these various fake courses that Debbie Crowder set up in this one department, and and that was the essence of the UNC scandal. There there was there were these you know, hundreds of courses, fake courses that were set up in this one department, and athletes were funneled through them for decades. Now, one thing, however, that even Weinstein did not point out, and which I would like to emphasize, is that there were many other departments and many other faculty members and many other administrators and, and staff persons, in other departments, that is, who also went out of their way to make life easier for athletes. The Romance Languages Department had at least two or three professors who scheduled courses that were known to be athlete-friendly courses. The School of Education had a faculty member who catered to athletes. The Communication Department had a number of courses that were known to be athlete-friendly. The Geography Department had a faculty member who routinely offered independent study courses for athletes. And I could go on. There were others, other examples. So, you know, what, what the, um, the, the egregious character of the AFRI-AFAM scam um, shows is that there, there was a, a predilection, a, a, a tendency, an institutional inclination at UNC to make things easier for athletes. And there were plenty of faculty, plenty of administrators, plenty of officials in athletics, certainly, who were aware of this, who looked the other way when it was necessary to do so, who encouraged this, you know, this, this, this egregious form of favoritism that in the end, of course, uh, was really all about defrauding athletes of their educations and uh, it, it, seeing to it that the athletic department was able to exploit the, the, the physical talents of, of the athletes without their risking academic eligibility. You really hit on a lot of the big um, issues that sort of start this conversation rolling for us. Um, I was going to ask you, in fact, as a follow-up, but you, you answered it beautifully. I was going to ask you, so who really was cheated? 
in this um, cheating scandal, but I think you got to that there, this idea that athletes were defrauded of their education fundamentally, right? And that's really like, we have, I think, exactly, in popular culture, this really distorted notion that somehow like the athletes are the beneficiaries of this kind of scandal, right? Because it's easier for them and then they get their degree so easily and they get to do their sports and it's terrific. Uh, and that really um, completely kind of um, obfuscates the fact that the compensation that athletes receive for their labor at these institutions is ostensibly their education. So if they're not receiving an education, if they're being defrauded of an education, although in the moment it is understandable for them to want a lighter load, right? Because what human being doesn't want to have less labor on their plate when they're being put through brutal and taxing regimes of labor that physically punishes their body um, and leaves them mentally drained and exhausted. Of course, most individuals under those circumstances would like a lighter load in the moment, but that doesn't mean they're benefiting in the long run. Yeah, and, and, and you know, uh, people often point to the, the non-revenue sport athletes as uh, as exemplars of the system. And, and they say, well, you know, if, if the tennis players and the, and the gymnasts and the swimmers can do it, why can't the football players do it? Well, I mean, there, there are a number of answers to that question. Uh, number one being that the coaches in the non-revenue sports, it's, it sure seems, I don't know that this is true across the board, but it, 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 it is generally true at UNC, in my experience at least, that the coaches in the non-revenue sports are more respectful of schedules and of the academic demands placed on their, own, their, on their athletes than are the football and basketball players, coaches. Um, and so they, they have more time carved out for them than the football and basketball players do. Uh, also, the, the non-revenue sport athletes tend to come from well-to-do backgrounds. Uh, they're not exclusively, but overwhelmingly white. They are more privileged than the football and basketball players. And they are, I would, I would venture to say, on average, they're probably more prepared, better prepared for, for university work than football and basketball players are. And, and so it, it's, you know, we're comparing apples and oranges here when we talk about the revenue versus the non-revenue sports. And, and it, it, um, it just galls me that the NCAA and its member institutions like to use the catch-all category of student athlete to speak for the experience of, of athletes in general in the big time sport institutions because football and basketball players have a very different kind of experience. Absolutely. Ted, did you want to jump in on this? Uh, yeah, so, so, so just a couple uh, uh, points I wanted to add. So the, the, there is one thing about UNC, certainly, that I think is, is uh, um, um, not unique, but, but certainly notable uh, um, outside of the fraud um, issue, which is that um, UNC, by and large, uh, is a phenomenal uh, institution. And I think what what uh, uh, I think has been forgotten is that 
in the late 1980s, UNC was rightfully so uh, uh, referred to as a as a public ivy. At one point, it had um, it was ranked tenth in the nation among all uh, um, universities in the U.S. news and uh, um, university rankings. So, so, so when we're talking about what kind of education are these athletes missing out on, it's 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 really a world class education, and I and I think that point merits emphasis is that it, UNC wasn't just let's say any other school. Uh, this was, I think, an opportunity for 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 athletes to get an education that's um, really uh, uh, by any definition first class. Um, so, but but to go back to sort of what's so different about these, you know, uh, about uh, the, the the time requirements and so on of of um, what we call revenue sport athletes, so football and and basketball. Well, the first thing is, particularly with football players, they're going through a lot of uh, uh, physical pain and the physical damage. Uh, they're repeatedly being hit in the head, and it's it's a uh, none of that is conducive to obtaining an education. It's it's it, in fact it's anathema. I mean, I can't think of 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 a of a scenario in which, well, you'd be less inclined to to uh, um, to benefit or less able to benefit from from your education than um, suffering hours of of uh, of uh, physical punishment and exhaustion, and then having to go back and say, okay, well now I have to study. It's it's number one. It's 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 very difficult to do, and number two, it's uh, it, it's it's uh, really um, it, it's it's harmful to to their health. I mean, they're they're losing out on sleep, um, and uh, so they're really the, this idea that there's some room to compensate or that that the education is is the compensation that that athletes receive. I think it's you know it's really it's a mirage. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I totally agree with you on that. And I was actually I was one I was thinking about as you were talking. I, I don't know if either of you have had the experience or, or the opportunity um, to have football players in your classes at all at your respective institutions. Um, but it's certainly something that I encounter. Uh, I typically teach uh, first year writing seminars, although I've also taught in the summer and the summer courses I teach um, are mostly offered for athletes. And that's not some kind of indiscretion. Uh, it's because athletes have to be enrolled in class during the summer in order to be involved in their athletic activities. And so the institutions sometimes have to offer, basically offer classes that make it possible for those athletes um, to get the academic experience that needs to go along with the athletic one. And so um, I have um, had the chance to teach some of those classes, which have been filled with football players at times. Uh, and I've also taught many football players in my regular seminars, not coincidentally, because I teach classes on sport and labor. <laughs> and Duke doesn't do much of that. In fact, we don't even have a kind of kinesiology department. And so, um, you know, this is one of the few opportunities students have to actually take classes on sport from an academic perspective. And a lot of students, athletes are interested in doing that. So um, this is a long way of saying that I've had a lot of these students in my classes uh, before, a lot of these football players, basketball players, et cetera. Um, 
And, you know, I'm struck by exactly what you're describing, Ted. That's what I'm trying to get to. Um, you see the toll that, like, your respective students, like, what they're living uh, as they're trying to endure your class, right? And um, I think one of the sad things that can often happen in this system is that um, faculty will look at athletes, right? And imagine that because they look tired or sleepy or distracted in class, that somehow testifies to a lack of engagement or care for the work that they're doing. And so it's sort of downloaded on them in a very neoliberal way. Like this is the athlete's responsibility, right? The athlete is at fault for what's happening here. Um, when in fact, you know, clearly for all the reasons you've just described, the issue is structural. The issue is the, de the demand that is being placed on these individuals that makes it almost impossible for them to excel. Even if they are as well prepared as they possibly could be, how are they going to excel under those circumstances? You know, so I always think like in those moments, I want to try to take the student aside and sort of say, um, listen, I, I, get, I get why this is such a struggle for you um, if you're falling asleep in class or something like that. Um, but the thing is, you know, frankly, the institution actually wins if you're falling asleep in class. Because if you're falling asleep in class, you're getting nothing in return for the work you're putting in. I'm not trying to toot my own horn when I say like what I'm teaching you in this class is your compensation, but like that's the fact of the matter, whether or not it's like a great value that is what you're being compensated with. And so, you know, it seems like a real shame to me when um, those students then don't get, aren't able to have that experience that they're supposed to have. Um, and, so, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, and, the, and well, exactly to your point, it, it's the, the incentive really for them uh, from, the, from an institutional standpoint and, and, and from the coach's standpoint is for them not to spend as much time on education and to spend, to focus as much of their time on their sport, because that's, that's really how the institutional, that's where how, how the school benefits and that's how the coach benefits. The coach's salary depends on how many wins, um, what bowl game they attend um, and so on. That's, that's what drives the coach's uh, um, salary and that's what the coach wants to maximize. So all of the incentives uh, point to um, focusing the athlete's time as much on um, sport and as little on education. Oh, um, so, so really, the athlete's caught in a no-win situation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and if I could just add one little one little note of illustration here, I, I have had I've I've taught at UNC for thirty years now in all those 30 years i've had one football player this was about maybe 20 years ago now and that's incredible that's incredible to me yeah I, I, yeah we we could talk about the reasons for that but not that i know what they are necessarily but um i just want to say about this one football player that he was an incredibly nice guy um came to class every day, sat in the back, and fell asleep about halfway through each lecture. Uh, he, didn't, he never made it through an entire lecture, never. And he got a very low grade in the course. He, he, he managed to pass it, although I, I suspected that this was mainly because he had had some help writing his papers, honestly because his, his, uh, his exams 
his exam performance in class was not not good at all. Um, but uh, you know that that was a, a searing experience for me because I realized that it, it wasn't his fault. It clearly was not his fault, not in any way. He was exhausted. He he could not make it through the class. It was a nine a.m. class. I mean, maybe, maybe that was part of the problem, but. Um, I, I just felt for the guy. I felt for him, and and uh, I I have often wondered whether the very low grade he got in the class is one of the reasons why I've not seen any more football players. I don't know, but I wonder. Yeah, I I, w I wouldn't be I wouldn't be shocked. That's for sure. Um, and and by the way, you, you said something which I think is also relevant, and maybe something that a lot of folks wouldn't assume if they aren't familiar with the kind of day-to-day -day operations of college sport in the United States. But the fact that, that individual was at every class without fail is likely not a coincidence. There was a whole regime of sur um, surveillance and regulation right. around right. right the appearance of those athletes. They get in big trouble um, if they don't attend class. And the way I characterize it is they're subjected to kind of corporal punishment, in fact, and the entire team might be in yeah. the form of, you know, right, overtraining, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, that's and, right. And, class, and, classroom checkers who, who see if they're there or not. That's right. Yep, and, and, and exactly to, to, to what you just said, um, one of the fascinating things that, that has really come out of this UNC fraud scandal are um, um, the two million documents um, that were released as part of the Weinstein uh, report, which which really cast light on the points you just raised, you, you both just raised, uh, the whole thing with the with the with the overtraining uh, punishment. There are lists in there to show, okay, this athlete did this, didn't show up for class, extra thirty minutes in the weight room. Um, uh, they they. Uh, Run laps, or, or that sort of uh, of a punishment, um, and and so on. It really explains a lot of how how uh, um, or why these athletes are so exhausted. Um, one of the things that that I ran into was the schedule of, of all of these athletes and the, how early they start, and really. Uh, email exchanges among um, uh, the, the members of uh, academic support for student athletes who was just uh, were just astounded at just the impossible nature of the schedule that these athletes had to um, uh, adhere to on a daily basis. So uh, really, the documents really bear out the, the points that both of you have uh, have made. Yeah, uh, and we we, we got to get back to those documents in just a second. Um, but before we do, the one other thing I wanted to ask you, Jay, based on what you said, uh, was you mentioned all the different faculty across the university who were essentially complicit with what was happening, um, right. and that really struck me because you know obviously we get why the athletic department and administrators um, are have deep incentives, right, to participate in that kind of culture because it's like it's likely going to um, enhance performance. It's a type of performance enhancer, really. 
um, in the context of a system where all students are subjected to academic demands. If you have less academic demands and more time for sport, you know, that's a performance enhancer, really. Um, so given that the institution is relying a lot on revenue and branding based on the success of their teams, makes perfect sense why administrators and athletic department officials would have those investments. But faculty are a different story, I would imagine. Um, I'm curious what you think kind of motivated some of those decisions. Oh, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, I'm not sure that I have. I'm not sure that I have the right answer or a definitive answer. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, I, one of the one of the aspects of the of the Debbie Crowder story, if I may, she's not a faculty member. She was never a faculty member, but. I think it's important and it has never been highlighted to the degree it, it should have been. Um, one of the aspects of the Debbie Crowder story that needed to be foregrounded in, the, in ways that it was not was that she was a fan. She was a basketball fan. She wanted the Tar Heels to win. And there's a you know there's a there's a very interesting observation in the Weinstein report about um, about De Debbie Crowder on the morning after a Tar Heels loss, not being able to face up to it and staying at home, not coming to work because the loss hit her so much. You know it it. it it had such a psychological impact on her. Her fandom was a huge part of her complicity in this scam. Her, her willingness to commit to this corrupt scheme. She was a fan. And you know what? Many faculty are fans too. And they, they live and die by the Tar Heel schedule, and they want to be Duke no matter what, and they certainly want to field a team that can beat Duke no matter what. And I mean, I'm simplifying, of course, but but there are lots of faculty who who care about wins and losses, and also whose commitment to to the team and who, whose you know association with the, the sport leads them to you know engage in a certain kind of hero worship with the athletes themselves and so they're willing to they're willing to cut corners they're willing to help out they're willing to go the extra mile to help the, the team to help the athletic department to help the athletes themselves if they feel that the, you know, the athletes themselves are, are uh, exhausted and, and you know or need the extra help whatever there are lots of faculty all across the university who are willing to do that and that is not a unc specific phenomenon i assure you it happens everywhere and um yeah so uh so that that is yeah that's it's an un, un, an unacknowledged core problem in my opinion there's also one 
other problem that I think that 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 really compounds the issue, which is that athletic departments have grown uh, increasingly more and more powerful uh, within the institution. And so um, as such, um, there are certain faculty who uh, are are cognizant of that and see that uh, see their adherence or their 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 loyalty to the athletic department as a means uh, uh, to progress uh, th th their careers absolutely and uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, if, uh, if I'm being too subtle here um, uh, but I don't mean to be um, and they, uh, because I think um, there are, there are, uh, UNC is a prime case of that. Um, the, uh, the, the UNC uh, Chancellor, uh, Kevin Guskowitz, has had a long standing relationship with the football uh, program. And uh, uh, certainly I think he would be one example of the, of of uh, someone, and certainly not alone. And and uh, as I mentioned, there, there there are a lot of documents in in the UNC um, uh, trove who 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 show specifically uh, um, uh, sort of the, the thinking of these individuals. Um, uh, but uh, it's 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 no secret that uh, if you're if you're friendly to the athletic department, um, I, uh, you, you can move up. <laughs> you can even become chancellor. That's right. <laughs> even, even <laughs> chancellor. Even, even yeah. uh, and 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 uh, if you're if you're friendly with a football program and um, you're 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 friendly with the NFL, well, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's a recipe Ted, for success, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Ted. There's one thing I would just like to add to that. I, I. <laughs> I hope we'll talk more about Guskowitz, um, but but there, it, the the pressure on faculty and the enticement offered to faculty um, by the athletic department, I think I think actually especially affects non tenured faculty and and. Uh, Faculty of insecure status, who who are also maybe sports fans or who have some connection to the athletic program in one way or another, who are adjacent to the athletic program, and and who can who can be um, coerced, subtly or not, into doing things for the athletic department. So Guskowitz, Guskowitz is is, is a, a special case uh, because he, he was a department chair, he was a dean, he's now the chancellor, he's a, a MacArthur Fellowship winner, incredibly uh, prominent faculty member, but less prominent faculty, I would say, are even more vulnerable on average. You know, uh, just generally speaking. The less prominent faculty and the less secure faculty are even more vulnerable to the kinds of, of pressure and, and the sorts of enticements that an athletic department can extend. Yeah, no question. No question. 
there are a couple of great points there that I actually wanted to pick up on because um, I'll start with the the latter, uh, given that I myself am a non-tenure track faculty member. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I can relate to the kind of precarity that so many university teachers experience today. And that's increasing every second, it seems like now in the face of the pandemic, um, including for folks who previously were tenure track, um, but now have lost those positions as departments are cut at places like Ohio University. Yeah. Um, and I am fortunate to say, uh, and I've said this before, um, so there's two things here, because I mean, of course, I'm, I'm going to mention Duke, and there's this funny Duke-UNC thing that starts to sound like we're piling on UNC, and especially me coming from Duke, it's like, well, of course, there's a rivalry here. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I hope that people understand that, like, when I, the kind of solidarity I feel when it comes to this kind of rivalry is not to Duke or Duke Athletics, it's to Jay <laughs> for the work that he's done in exposing corruption in college sport and to Ted for the same reason, and for the athletes at both institutions, right? UNC and Duke equally in that sense. Um, but I will say, the, one of the things I've noticed at Duke, and I'm sure it's not a coincidence, I actually think, and I've kind of, again, I've noted this before, I think that Duke is a pristine example of about the best that the NCA system can be, not entirely coincidentally, in part because of the proximity of UNC, right? And the fact that they are kind of caught, that they know that the scrutiny that UNC has experienced will kind of fall on them too, um, because Duke and UNC are always sort of mentioned together in the same breath. And because of that, Duke has very strenuously attempted, I think, to uphold the supposed, like, at least veneer of academic rigor as much as that is possible within the system, as we've outlined it, right? So like in our classes at Duke, we cannot have, for the most part, except for those summer courses, we cannot have more than 50%. It has to, I believe, be fewer than 50% of the class enrollment can be athletes. Um, and that must be a function of what happened at UNC for all the reasons that Jay has described, for instance. Um, so, um, you know, I'm saying all this to say I actually have not experienced these kind of tensions. I think because Duke is very careful not to, um, to, to, um, to engage in any kind of impropriety that will make them, you know, become the next site of an academic scandal when it comes to college sports. So I haven't had those type of problems um, from an athletic department in my day-to-day -day life. But what I'm trying to say is I know as a contingent faculty member that there is constant terror that whatever you do or say, right, can lead to um, the loss of your job. And so it makes perfect sense what you were saying, Jay, that someone in that position at a UNC who understands, if, if I can only imagine, I would feel terror if the athletic department started leaning on me Right? I mean, I wouldn't feel ethically conflicted, but I would feel afraid for my job sure. um, because I wouldn't have all, I mean, we, we are unionized. We're really fortunate. We're both, you know, most non-intended track faculty across the country are not unionized. Uh, and UNC, it's illegal for them to be unionized yeah. because of the punitive state policy uh, against um, public sector unions, right? Yeah. So that's one thing I want to mention. And the other thing, which I found so dispiriting in what you said with respect to this notion of like the fandom of faculty members. And, and then you said something that which was powerful to me, which was that, like they felt empathy for the athletes, right? And I sure. believe that because they cared about them. But it's so tragic to me how um, misguided and misdirected that empathy becomes because we seem to have, it seems to me, and I'm curious what you both might think about this, but we just have a complete failure as faculty across the, this is a, this is a national problem. This is not a UNC problem. We have no mechanisms in terms of building solidarity between faculty and like student athletes, right? Like labor solidarity between people well, on these campuses, yeah. 
faculty are the people, especially tenured faculty, who have the power to speak out and advocate for the most for some of the most exploited people on campus. And instead, we somehow see them contributing to that exploitation in the ways you've described. It's heartbreaking yeah. to me. Uh, oh, you've hit on so many points here. <laughs> yeah, um, I think faculty, generally speaking, so uh, leaving aside the, the friendly faculty, the so-called friendly faculty, the people who are empathetic and who want to do what they can to advance the interests of the athletic department and of the teams and of the players, leaving them aside, I think faculty in general regard athletes as privileged beings who are an onerous burden for them to bear, honestly. Uh, uh, brutal, uh, yep. I mean, I think that is generally the case. I, I, I really do. Um, so, the, so that's one problem. The other problem, of course, is that athletes themselves are uh are robbed of their voice when they sign their national letter of intent they have no freedom of speech they can't organize they can't speak out they they have no power they they even if they knew that there were faculty sympathetic to them there's no way that they could reach out to them to to try to ally with them they couldn't because they're under the thumb of their coaches yeah, this is the exploitative nature of the system. Um, yeah, and, and, and you just really quickly, I want to add. There's there's an email that, that really just stood out to me, and and I've uh, I've uh, um, even cited it in 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 one of the papers uh, that 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 really encapsulates that just the the, the powerlessness. Um, uh, or, and the control that coaches have over over athletes, and it was, and and uh, it, it was in it was an email by one uh, professor in the exercise and uh, sports science uh, uh, department, and uh, she was asking the athletes about uh, well about being steered into these courses that that. Uh, um, uh, that they really didn't want to take, and then they found out that there were other alternatives, so they were they were angry about it, and uh, and uh, so so um, uh, the, the, the the professor, um, her name was uh, Deborah Stroman. Uh, she said, "Well, so why don't you speak out?" And the athlete said, "Well, I uh, I can't. I'm, I have to follow along, or my coach will take it out on me." And uh, that that just email says so much about you know, the the uh, control that coaches have over over the athletes and what a what a exploitative system this is that athletes cannot even advocate even for their own even yeah. on their own behalf they're they're, they're they're essentially just as Jay said they're they're stripped of any rights they don't have rights even over their names uh, so it's it, it they, it's an extraordinary and, and really a, a exploitative system that exists only in the United States. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, that, that's it, great. Oh, go ahead. Yes. It, it, I, I just want to add one thing. Uh, if there's one thing I could change tomorrow about the system, it would be giving faculty access to the athletes. 
allowing us to approach them, to speak to them, to educate them, um, and and to to ally with them. Of course, I, that's not going to happen tomorrow. But if there's one change in the system that I could make tomorrow, that would be the one. Because I, I do think there are plenty of faculty who do empathize with the athletes and who want to make a difference for them on behalf of them and 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 who could make a difference in their lives but we don't we can't get to them we can't get to them uh, you know i as as the founding member of the athletic reform group at, at unc this ad hoc group of faculty agitators back in 2011 that, that wanted to try to make a difference here during our scandal. I can tell you that we tried many times to get access to athletes, just to talk to them. We just wanted to have some athletes come talk to us about their experiences. Never happened. Could We could not get to them. It's, it's, like, it's like, I mean, an iron curtain. There's an iron curtain between faculty and athletes. Oh, that's, that's honestly, Jay, that's chilling. <laughs> Chills down my spine because um, that's, you know, that's not my experience because I think of just the exceptionally unusual circumstances I have in terms of the type of appointment and the type of students and what I teach and so forth and how, you know, Duke is a very different institution than UNC because mm -hmm. they're basically trying to offer a, a liberal arts kind of undergraduate education, um, but they're also playing big time ACC sports. So the proportion of big time athletes to the overall student population is almost unlike any other institution, right, in the United States. Um, and then when you teach a class on sports, well, you get a higher proportion of those athletes, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, even just as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking what an incredible blessing it is for me to have the opportunity because the students are in my classes. So like we have conversations, we have relationships. It didn't even really occur to me that kind of iron curtain concept you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's heartbreaking because you know, I, I agree with what you're saying. I have, because people, you know, people who I work with know what, that my work is in this area. So like I have colleagues constantly having conversations with me about, um, you know, like when, when issues around student athletes emerge in their classes and so forth, you know, they reach out to me because they, because they are empathetic, exactly as you're saying, right? They're, mm -hmm. They, they want to do the best thing. And they think, well, this is, a, you know, just as if, if I had a particular issue around accessibility, I might want to um, confront. And I have colleagues who do work on disability. I'm going to go to the expert to get the best possible answer. Um, and so, you know, people will sometimes right. treat me in that same way. But like what I'm trying to get at is just that a lot of people will do that because they actually do care. And when these conversations come out into the open, I think you're exactly right. Like a lot of faculty are concerned, but I mean, most of them have no real recourse, as you're describing, um, to do anything about it. So it's re that's really tragic. Uh, this, this is great. We could keep going down this line forever, but... Um, I do want to shift now, and we may well circle back to this because it's all related. But Ted, uh, I want to get into some now some of your more specific findings. Um, so, just to, you've been alluding to this, but as a consequence of the scandal outlined by Jay, UNC had to make public approximately two million documents. And I don't know where I saw this, but by the way, like Jay's name pops up in those documents because that means, that includes emails sent by faculty to each other. You were alluding to that, Ted. Like I've seen Jay's name in those documents, for instance. Um, I honestly don't know how because I, I, don't, I haven't really looked very much at those documents, but I, I noticed it because I know who Jay is. So that struck me. Um, oh, it's, it's, so they include everybody's name. I mean, everybody who was 
who is in any, you know, uh, um, their internal emails, internal documents, and so on, and uh, certainly very, a lot of emails involving uh, uh, Kevin Guskowitz, uh, emails between Kevin Guskowitz and the NFL, and so on. Exactly. So what what I'd love to get to now uh, are some of the really disturbing findings that you have um, certainly reported variously before in scholarly journals, as well as in work reported by The Athletic in um, both a video series of uh, uh, a few um, documentaries, uh, as well as uh, a very well reported article, all of which will be linked in the show notes for people who are interested in getting a little bit more of that. Um, but I'd just love for you, Ted, to give, give us a sense to start us rolling here on kind of what was so concerning about these documents that you poured through. Well, the certainly the first thing was was the the, the academic fraud itself, and that's really how how uh, for me it it got started. It was looking at well, what was the evidence of these of these uh, fraudulent classes, and and uh, so I was looking at it more. Towards, with an angle towards uh, towards writing an antitrust paper, which I eventually did. Uh, but um, what what started coming out of these documents was the the, the was uh, the actual treatment of, of of the athletes by the institution, and um, the the email that caught my eye and that eventually led to the paper on ADHD and the the, the athletic documentary was the one. Which indicated that 61% of of uh, athletes of a football incoming football athletes at UNC uh, um, uh, two classes two incoming classes and one classes of, of women's basketball had had uh, tested uh, as either LD or ADHD 61%, which is a just an astronomic number. I mean, we're talking about you know, maybe an order of magnitude. Higher than what we'd expect. So, so, so my thought was, what's going on here? Uh, why? Uh, how is this possible? Um, is is this an issue of, of misdiagnosis? And um, um, so, what's going on? So, so that's when I started digging through more of the documents and figure out, okay, well, um, it, are there more likely some more documents like this? And there are. There. There were hundreds of documents like that that detailed this program that detail you know how many athletes were medicated with uh, with uh, stimulants and so on and then how those athletes were used in concussion research so that was that, that was one category and the other category was really just going through um, the the uh, athlete exit interviews from uh, from uh, around 2004 through 2012, and see what what comments athletes were making, and how those um, what concerns they raised, and how those concerns filtered through um, uh, the administration, and uh, and, uh, and how were they uh, reflected in in faculty um, uh, meetings and so on, and how well the faculty was informed, and uh, and uh, to me, the, the nature of those documents, the, the nature of the comments there, w w was was uh, to to say to use the word troubling would be an understatement. Um, I, uh, very disturbing. Very, um, frankly, 
disgraceful treatment of athletes. Okay, yeah, and I really want to pick up on that here because um, one of the things I've been concerned about in my own kind of work on college sport is that although you know I, I absolutely agree with the um, the larger position ongoing uh, discussion around exploitation in terms of this compensation question, which we've got on before this show, and we've been kind of you know we've alluded to it in places here, i.e., that students are ostensibly being compensated through an education, not actual wages of some kind. Uh, and the fact that it's an inherent form of exploitation of kind of the value that they are producing, the revenue they are producing. And it's like, as we, I think we spent a lot of time talking about today, and I think it's really important to talk about, one critical piece that is not discussed enough is the educational part that we have been discussing, right? Because if the compensation is supposed to be education and they are not receiving education, it is indeed a more severe form of exploitation than even we typically understand, right? And that's what we've been talking about so far. But the other piece that you're getting at here, Ted, for me is, and this one I really feel like is absolutely not discussed enough. And this is, this is really true in all the work, the work that was reported in The Athletic and also what you're talking about with the exit inter interviews is that part of exploitation is also the level of harm someone is being subjected to in order to produce benefit for someone else, right? And again, not for the self, right? Because they're not actually recouping the value here. The value is going to the institution. Uh, in terms of the revenue of big time college sports, especially. But we, I mean, so one piece is the concussion element. Um, and another piece, I, I'd be, I'd, I'm interested what you're, because I feel like you're, you're teasing us here a little bit with like sort of what these exit interviews are revealing. Can you give us a sense? Like, what is the harm piece? What, what is happening to these athletes on our campuses? Well, so um, in, the, in, uh, in, the, in a paper that I have a forthcoming in the Texas, uh, 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 sport and entertainment law review. Um, I I go through the um, a lot of the exit interviews at UNC, and then also I discuss sort of what's going on or what has been happening over the last um, ten or twenty years um, at uh, colleges and universities in the U.S. You know, from from the Larry Nassar scandal to the ongoing. Uh, uh, scandals at Michigan, Michigan State, um, Ohio State, uh, USC, um, and so on and on. Um, so, um, uh, in, and again, I, I certainly don't mean to pick on UNC here. It's just that when I discuss, or one of the reasons why I've sort of focused on UNC is because they're the only ones with so many documents. They're the only ones that have given us an opportunity to really peek behind the curtain and see, okay, well, how does the athletic department work? Um, how does it affect its, college, its, its, its athletes? And what's the interaction between the athletic department and the great university as a whole? So, uh, so that's the reason why, I have, why I've been focusing on UNC. Um, and so, so one of the, the, the comments from those exit interviews are of the nature of and, 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 and I'm quoting here, um, athletes saying that if you go to sports medicine, you're screwed. And uh, in, in my article, I, I cite to the to those exact documents, uh, so people can read it, read them for themselves. So, and um, uh, concerns being raised by faculty that uh, this is uh, there, there's one faculty member that mentioned this is the. I think the fifth year I've been doing these exit interviews and uh, this uh, uh, problems with the same doctor have been raised every single time uh, and I'd like something done about it and um, of course I look 
I look and there, that doctor still exists, <laughs> still uh, is still at UNC, uh, uh, despite all that. So um, there, there's a series of of of, uh, of exit interviews um, that really point to this problem, and and that also point to a problem that was really never seemed to be addressed. And so you. Of course, you, just as you might expect it, just as you might fear, uh, this tends to pop up again. And we saw that pop up again last year with, uh, with the UNC uh, women's basketball team. So concerns again about uh, one of the team doctors, concerns about the coach and so on. So all of this is to say, is, uh, sort of summarize it is to say that um, there are people aware that there are problems. Um, those problems don't seem to generate any solutions. Uh, these tend to be just uh, the papered over so the machine can continue to make money. No leader ever pays a price at UNC, Ted. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, it's, it's uh, everyone fails upward. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's, it is, I mean, it's just, it's incredibly disheartening um, because, uh, you know, this kind of circles back on what we were talking about before, but one thing that it brings to mind to me is just the fact that the point of an institution of higher education is to nurture the young people who attend, right? I mean, like, we, we can understand how many different ways this has been corrupted, in part just by the cost, the very cost of tuition. Uh, I mean, inaccessibility corrupts that mission to a certain extent. Um, but it's just, it, it feels like it should be unimaginable that the young people who are coming to these institutions to learn and be nurtured are then subjected to these forms of harm, such forms of harm that they, they can't even trust medical practitioners to have their best interests at heart. Um, it boggles the mind. And, he, and yet it's true. It's true. You can see it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, the, uh, it's unfortunate, but certainly seems, uh, certainly, you can see from the documents that uh, these sports medicine professionals are their loyalty uh, in in some cases um, appears to lie with the team rather than the athletes themselves. Right, we bring them here ostensibly to educate them, and instead we inflict brain damage. And it's incredible. It's just incredible. Exactly. Yeah. Let's, uh, for the brain damage piece, I mean, here's one aspect of it I, I've talked about on this show before, but, um, you know, it just really it sticks out to me because of the confluence kind of of the academic and the athletic exploitation piece and lack of ethics. You know, again, I've said this already today, but you, you can get the logic of an athletic department um, oriented in a capitalist system oriented around revenue production maximizing the exploitation of the body of their labor force in order to generate that surplus. I mean, like, yeah, I don't like it, but I understand it. Right. And I think we all understand it. It's, it's easy to understand, but when it starts to get muddied by the kind of academic side, right. Becoming complicit. And that's the word we've used before today. Um, it, it starts to sort of, it, it, it's, it's harder to wrap one's head around and it's also, it's all, it's harder. It's in some ways it feels harder to excuse. And so one thing I'm thinking about here, and I only know about this because of the work that Ted has done. Um, and I, I won't speak at length because again, I've talked about this on the show before, but um, 
We know, for instance, in some of the concussion studies that were done uh, under Guskovitz's uh, guidance, that um, if you look, because we can read their informed consent forms, that's part of the document dump here, right? We can actually read the informed consent forms. And that, to me, was incredibly powerful literature. You know, one thing you, you see is that the concussion scientists at the institution who are doing this research, their research relies on the harm that these athletes are subjected to. They can't learn about concussions unless the athletes who have not yet been subjected to a concussion ultimately are subjected to those concussions, right? The research relies upon that and it assumes it will happen. And exactly. The only reason, thank you. They're doing that research precisely because they know it is harmful. They wouldn't be doing these studies if they didn't think it was harmful. And yet the consent forms actually tell us they're not revealing to the athletes the concerns they have about the harm caused by concussions. That's not in the form at all. They don't even mention the harm caused by concussions as one of the risks of participation in the study, right? Um, and they're not even willing in any way, shape, or form to then look out for the, um, those study participants in terms of the harm that might even be caused by the study itself beyond the concussion. They're waiving the institution's right, or the institution's, excuse me, responsibility to have to, in some way, compensate for that harm. And that, to me, it feels disgraceful. It feels like it's a complete breach of research ethics. Oh, it is. It's, 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 uh, 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 I mean, that's exactly it. It is. I mean, you, uh, as you pointed out, these researchers have a vested interest in, in, uh, the, the continuation of football. This is how they get funding. This, uh, and not only that, these same researchers, and I'm not just referring to Kevin Guskowitz, but also, um, the individuals with whom he, he tends to publish the, uh, the uh, uh, Stephen Brolio at Michigan, Michael McRae at 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 the uh, uh, University of Wisconsin, uh, Chris Giza, and so on at UCLA, and so on. There, all of these individuals have rampant industry ties, whether to the NFL, the NHL. There, uh, so they have a vested interest in continuing this. If if uh, if uh, um, college football um, stopped um, involving brain damage, their research would dry up. Essentially, <laughs> uh, they would be of a, a very little use to to uh, um, uh, the to the sports industry. Yeah, I would just throw in that big time college sports is this phenomenon writ large. Uh, the, the entire enterprise is predicated on the abuse of the athletes. The entire enterprise is. Uh, they are they're abused academically, they're abused physically and medically, they're uh, uh, abused as uh, rights-bearing individuals who have to forfeit their rights. Uh, they, they live a life of abuse. And the entire enterprise is predicated on that. And, and this is shameful. It is shameful for universities to be doing this. Shameful. And, and they tried to hide it, 
really in some sense by the by uh by saying oh look at all these fancy buildings that we build look so, so we, we we even built this this uh you know this uh um lazy river we have all these buildings um where you know uh with with uh, uh theaters and so on all of these are are designed to separate the athlete from the university okay right. they're they're designed to create a sports program um uh technically within the university but outside of it so that in their own in 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 their own um words in the in what the, what these athletic administrators say that athletes can spend all of their time there so they are designed to keep athletes as focused as much as possible on being an athlete, not on being a student. Uh, so this idea that that the NCAA has peddled that, well, you know, there's this integration of athletics and academics. There is no such thing for, uh, or very little such thing with, you know, with deference to what, what Nathan said in his experience at Duke, uh, you know, by and large, this integration is a is is really doesn't exist. It's 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 an exclusion. It's a separation of of the athlete from the university. And in in return for all this, it's not an education that athletes receive. They receive a piece of paper that says, "Hey, here's a degree." That's right. not an education. Right. It's just a piece of paper. That's right. And in the context of the United States, we we really can't forget that they're also left with a lifetime very often of insurance costs right for the harm that has been subject their bodies have been subjected to i mean that's the thing that is i think you know if we have any listeners who are not from the united states you know it's it's hard to really grasp just how horrifying that is that you can put someone through the experiences they have to play through on the football field experiences that have killed individuals like jordan mcnair in recent memory and leave um, you know, according to the Boston University study from 2017, 90% of the former college football players who never went on to play professional football with CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, right? So in other words, what I'm trying to say is systematically, almost every participant of football at the least, and that's just football, like in these other sports, when we talk about knee injuries, back injuries, the list goes on and on and on, right? But with football, we know the brain injury is happening to practically everyone involved in some way, shape, or form. We know it. And for the four years they're at the institution, oh, yeah, they got, the, they got that Cadillac insurance plan. You know, they got the best care, supposedly, although Ted is telling us actually not based on those exit interviews, right? They're not getting the best medical care, perhaps, that they could be. But, you know, that's at least the illusion we have. But there's no illusion about what happens after those four years end or five years if they're redshirting, after those five, four or five years end, they're on the hook for all of those expenses. And the expenses are unimaginable. It's, I mean, it's just yet another part of this process. It's, yeah. it, so it's not just CTE. And I, and I think this is the other thing that I want to emphasize is that, uh, you, you know, we can only diagnose CTE uh, uh, post-mortem. But even before you get to that, there are a whole series of other um, the cognitive problems that are associated with repeatedly being hit in the head. And you think about these athletes who, who you know, well, let's say they don't go on to play NFL football. They've spent four years being hit in the head in college. 
uh, spent four years being hit in the head in high school and how many years before that? Yes. So what exactly, I mean, some of them are going to be okay. You know, maybe they don't show any symptoms. Maybe they'll go on to have wonderful careers and, and some become doctors and, and so on. But by and large, many of them will leave the university with at best a degree that reflects a, st- a substandard education and a series of uh, long-term health problems. That's the legacy of NCAA, of, right. of NCAA college sports. Yeah, I, I would just like to add to that, that in addition to the insurance costs that uh, they'll be dealing with for the rest of their lives, there, there's a huge opportunity cost that comes from having failed to acquire a genuine university education, which means for them, for the great vast majority of them, particularly in the revenue sports, I would say, that they will have no opportunities outside of the world of sports. They can't, they will not be able to pursue careers outside of coaching, training, operating a gym, um, some, some, some career that is tied in one way or another to the world of sports. They won't be able to do it because they weren't properly educated at their university. Exactly. Yep. You know, I I just want to jump on that, Jake, because precisely, you know, precisely for that reason, they become all the more beholden to the institution because what the institution offers them is a network, a, a network of contacts beyond, right? Like if you become a member of our family, our brotherhood, all the words that are used almost ubiquitously, right? What that buys you is, you know, that network yeah. of connections beyond the institution that will set you up with a job. A job <laughs> you know, in sports, yes, exactly. A job in sports, or even potentially outside of sports, possibly, because maybe you have possibly. boosters here. Yeah. But, 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 but the point is, though, I, I don't think that that's such a great victory, because what, what it also means, if we think about that, is you can never then speak out against that network, right. right? Speak out against that institution. You are one hundred percent beholden to it, and you understand that, right? You understand where your bread is buttered, and if you don't follow along with it, then you've sacrificed everything along the way, Ugh. and then you're also left with nothing at the end if one you of, speak out against it. One of the saddest moments of the entire duration of the UNC scandal to me was the moment when Rashad McCants bravely admitted that, yeah, he had taken a bunch of paper classes and he had coasted through his his college career doing very little academic work and other people wrote his papers for him, et cetera. And Roy Williams managed to corral the entire UNC basketball community, or at least a very large portion of it, to stand behind Roy and denounce Rashad as a liar. That's sickening. Sickening. Absolutely sickening. Even and though he was right. He was right. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. He was right. Yeah. Absolutely. But it, it, it speaks to the, what, what you were just talking about. Yes. I mean, you get plugged into the network and 
and that's the end of it. I mean, you're you're part of the family. It's it's kind of like a crime family. Let's, let's you know, it's it's kind of yeah. like a crime family. Um, that's and, right, and and you know, I mean, I, not to go on. This is a whole other topic. But yeah. Like, for those who are familiar with Silent Sam, um, which is a, a, a white supremacist Confederate monument, which has been um, a scar on UNC's campus um, for, I you know, had been for well over a century. I don't know that history too well because I'm not, I haven't been in these parts so long. But I mean, maybe t- tell me, Jay, how long is how long was Silent Sam up? 1913. So yeah. Okay, from 1913, so a little over a century, right? Yeah. Um, you know, a white supremacist monument that every. Um, black UNC basketball player or football player or student of any kind got to feast their eyes upon every day as they <laughs> trudged to labor for the institution, right? A reminder of how the institution viewed them and was willing to dehumanize them. Um, and Roy Williams, who himself profited directly off of that labor more than maybe anyone else, um, yeah. wasn't even willing to denounce that statue. He played the same kind of Trumpian both sidesism, right? Well, there are good people on both sides, exactly as Trump did in Charlottesville. That was Roy Williams on the statue until, and this is critical, until a group of former athletes, former basketball players, primarily at UNC, publicly wrote a letter denouncing that statue. And for me, that letter was one of the single greatest, um, had, this, had an immense impact on the fact that the statue is not standing on the campus anymore. And of course, then Roy was changing his tomb afterwards. And to me, I, I, I'm curious what you think about this, but you know, I, I really, for all these reasons, I so admired those athletes oh, yeah. for taking that stand and finally like, you know, speaking up and saying, you can't, you know, people have written, Billy Hawkins has written about how college sport is the new plantation, yeah. right? Well, UNC, is a great example of that new plantation and they were willing to stand by a white supremacist monument yeah these are not unrelated phenomena absolutely well here let's talk about a little bit about that because here's the thing i want to get to and actually i'm going to bring it because we're going to we're going to have to wind down soon because i can't keep you forever um but i want to make it a little bit more personal now because we were talking earlier about the fandom of faculty and how that plays into it um and it's always a theme in my own work something i'm thinking about the way in which although i pin um, the blame, as it were, for the kind of harm we've been describing on larger structures always. I mean, I, I think we have to have a structural analysis as we have had today. Even if we're talking about an institution like UNC, we are locating it within a larger system of U.S. higher education and the NCA system and so forth. Um, but, you know, fans, for varying reasons, they're, they're, not, they're not accountable for the structure. They fit, they slot within the structure in various ways. And often it is the very difficult conditions in their own lives that make them so susceptible to fandom, you know, and I've experienced this my own self, right? The meaning that people try to extract from sport, from sports fandom is a function of capitalist relations and other factors um, that make them need and desire, right? The meaning that they get from sport, but it does place them in a very uh, problematic and I've called dehumanizing relationship often with athletes as a consequence with that because they make immense demands of the bodies of athletes in order to satisfy their own desires. Um, and so, you know, we've been kind of at least nudging towards that in terms of that, the faculty position in that, in that sense. But what I actually want to touch on now is what you both have experienced as folks who have publicly spoken up about what has happened at this institution right? Understanding that there is a rabid fan base at UNC. Um, so I'm just curious, like, have you, I guess, let me put it that way. 
have you experienced backlash both of you we'll just we'll just start with jay and then go to ted on this uh yes it's why i don't have a twitter account I, I, okay I, <laughs> um yeah the 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 twitter backlash was vicious and I, it's why i i got off that platform um, that was though from from fans not from the university per se yeah um, yeah uh, at the university, uh, you may know that I, I experienced uh, uh, a very interesting uh, confrontation with Kevin Guskowitz when he was dean of the College of Arts and Sciences over a course that I developed on the history of big-time college sports and the rights of athletes, which, for reasons that are still somewhat mysterious to me, he decided should not be offered. And he, he and, and the other deans with whom he worked tried to see to it that that course got suppressed. And I won't go into all the details because the, the good news is that we, the history department and I prevailed in the end and, and the course exists and I still teach it. But it, it took nearly a year of really knock down, drag out fighting with the administration uh, for me to win my right to teach that course. And, you know, I have to assume that Guskowitz himself was probably getting pressure from boosters, fans, uh, others who had decided that I was evil and should not be allowed to, to, to teach about college sports, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I have I have experienced backlash, and I've lost friends. I've lost friends on the faculty here, who thought I went too far, and, and that uh, I I should have uh, done more to protect the reputation of UNC, and, and that I wasn't unfair, etc. So yeah, I, I've had I've experienced backlash. Uh, I've also gained I've also gained a lot of new friends. I will say, but but um, but yeah, it, it was not easy. And no, and I think that's that really, and I'm going to come to you in one sec, Ted, but yeah, I, I just want to underline, I, I think that's really important context for this story because it, it indicates yet another way in which the system is upheld, right? Like if this is, if this oh, is the absolutely. experience of people, right, whistleblowers, essentially, then um, obviously it pays to stay quiet, right? Uh, Ted, what about you? Well, and, you know, to your point, I think piling on the whistleblowers, uh, as a quintessential American tradition, uh, I think it's, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I think uh, people who rock the boat are uh, generally draw uh, the uh, the ire of those who would rather prefer uh, things stay as they are. So, um, have I received uh, backlash? I've, I've sort of been insulated by the fact that I'm I'm uh, Geographically, uh, so so far away from uh, or from UNC. So uh, just um, other than you know attacks and uh, nasty words on social media, which I don't really care uh, about. Just and 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 again, it's just uh, partly because I'm I'm in Utah and and that you know. 1700 miles or 2000 miles away from from uh, um, uh, 
they're from North Carolina. So, so, so I don't perceive the heat um, as much. Um, I think the, the, uh, most of the, the, uh, the fire I drew was from uh, uh, the concussion piece from the athletic concussion piece. And, and uh, you know, but that largely came, you know, some of it came from fans who sort of eager to see, you know, who, to take any position that would seem to uh, exonerate UNC and show that the attacks on UNC were, you know, were, were driven by, you know, oh, this is just some Duke grad who, you know, uh, you know, has it in for UNC, which is, you know, absurd. Uh, I, they, I, I, in fact, I, I actually grew up a UNC fan after coming to the U.S. And right. my, my mom went, attended UNC. So that's that's sort of how I, you know, I I was a diehard UNC basketball fan before attending Duke. But you know, but that aside, uh, most of the attacks on me came from, you know, uh, um, you know, from from UNC itself, from the UNC's TBI Center. And then that uh, really rather laughable letter from uh, from the uh, you know their the the the, the uh, cadre of of, uh, uh, of industry funded um, research folks, which I was happy to see, quite frankly. Right, <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, okay, well, listen, two more questions for you because uh, I just I can't I can't stop yet. Um, so first, because this just this is just this is my own curiosity here. Neither of you, on paper, I mean, like other than some publications and things you've done in, in more recent the last decade or so, but on paper, you're not obviously um, college sport, college athlete advocates necessarily. I mean, Jay, especially, right? You're a historian of France, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> how how did you? I'm just curious how both of you kind of got into this because it's clearly become a huge part of it, kind of a huge part of your public profile, like your work, your advocacy. How did that happen? Why? Honestly, it happened uh, um, really when I started looking at the at the UNC documents. I for you know for many years, you know, I I you know having attended Duke, I thought, hey, this is great. You know, I love college basketball. It's the you know it's uh, you know I was very oblivious to what was going on, and then I started digging through these documents and seeing what's happening in UNC, and then seeing that, hey, this is not just UNC, this is everywhere, because those documents are, are they're, they're not just uh, uh, limited to UNC. They involve various programs all, all over the country. Um, so then, then I had a moment of really introspection saying, well, well what am I doing here? I mean, I'm, I'm uh, uh, this is obviously wrong, and this is obviously not just happening at UNC. This is happening everywhere, and so I need to say something. So, so that's sort of how I, you know, uh, and and then I thought, well, you know, how can I say something? And and uh, said, well, I'm, you know, I'm an economist, and this really, this is this is an economic issue. So, um, so so that's why I started talking about the antitrust piece, and then uh, and then. The, the, the athlete welfare piece. I want to say, I just want to say too, Ted's being a little modest here. I mean, I think he's got a, a he's got a statistician's brain, and and he was able to analyze those documents 
process those documents in a way that nobody else was. Plenty of people have looked at those documents, including you and me, Nathan, I imagine, right? Yeah, I mean, we spent some time great point. Great point. But, but Ted, um, Ted was able to process them and, and make sense of them in a way that uh, very few other people could, I think. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I ne never in a million years could I have done that. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. right, Jay. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, well, I have a... being very humble because I benefited from, you know, I, I certainly have uh, benefited from his his uh, um, help and his his, uh, you know, the 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 uh, emails we exchanged. So so I'm, yeah. I honestly I, and certainly very much benefited from Mary as well, uh, particularly in in writing that piece on ADHD. Um, uh, I was able to to ask her about the findings that you know that I was seeing, and and, and she was able to, to to offer a lot of context. So it, it was it was certainly I was very very uh, fortunate to um, uh, to have the help of some very wonderful people. Uh, ever since we first con made contact on on email many years ago now, probably I don't know six years ago probably. Uh, it was a long time. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was, I think yeah. it was yeah, 2015 or 2016. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's a long time. Uh, Maybe before that. Yeah. Anyway, I have a, a short answer and a longer answer um, for how I got into all of this. I mean, my, and you, you decide, Nathan, if you want to hear both. But my short answer is that um, I had been a dean. I was, I was associate dean for undergraduate curricula between 2004 and 2008. And I got to know many of the administrators who are named in my book and named in our book, cheated, and, and who, uh, you know, who, who played a role in one way or another in the management of the UMC scandal. Um, and during my term as associate dean, I also got to, you know, I, I, I came to understand how the college worked and what what the mechanics of uh, course approval and program approval was like and, and so on. And so I was just attuned to the curricular issues that, that came to light in 2011 and 12 in particular, uh, when the academic dimension of the scandal really uh, blew into the open. Um, and and you know, because I knew Holden Thorpe personally, and I knew the dean of the college personally, Karen Gill, I thought that I could press them for answers, and that they would be forthcoming and, and would help me understand what the heck was going on. I was wrong about that. Um, they they were they were tight lipped. They were um, unwilling to share much at all. But um, that's the short answer. I. I was I had been a dean, and I was kind of plugged into the curricular mechanisms that were affected by the scandal, and I wanted to know more about it. Before I knew it, I, I had become a crusader. The long answer, I'll just I, I can keep this short, I think. But the longer answer is that I was a grad student at Michigan in the 1980s, and without going into much detail, I'll just say that I had a really bad experience as a grader and a course. In 1989, when I was finishing up my PhD, 
with a couple of Michigan football players who, who got favors in this course, thanks to the professor I was working with, and that left a bad taste in my mouth. And uh, I think when I came to UNC in 1990, it was only a, a year or so later, I at least had on my radar um, some of the problems with big time college sports and uh, the corner cutting that athletic departments would would seek out if they could find avenues for it. And so I was just generally alert to it. And uh, that's not to say I didn't become a, a Tar Heels fan. I did uh, throughout the '90s. I I, you know, I rejoiced whenever UNC beat Duke and um, enjoyed the 1993 national championship, whatever. But, uh, but I, I at least had on my radar uh, some of the problems that go along with big time sports when I came to Chapel Hill. That's fascinating. And there, there's just another example uh, of how, you know, grad students play a bigger part in these institutions than perhaps administrators understand. Yeah. Um, because yeah, some mistakes made there at the University of Michigan had a tremendous impact on UNC's future. Yeah. Uh, as it turned out. So well, that's fascinating. I'm really glad you shared that longer version. Um, and I'm always interested in mentions of University of Michigan because I have conceded that although I attended only Canadian universities, I did grow up as a University of Michigan fan because my dad uh, went to university in Windsor. Um, and mm -hmm. so that was sort of, of socialized into me. So sure. I, I have to say that Wolverines fandom kind of runs deep in me and it's hard to shake, but it's yet another, like if we had the document dump, I'm sure Ted would say this, right? If we had the document dump of 2 million documents from the University of Michigan, oh. I think we'd probably see some very oh. similar stories. Right? Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. It it's, you know, to, to be honest, and I, you know, I say this as a Duke grad, and I say this with, 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 with a lot of, um, uh, you know, respect for my alma mater. And uh, um, I, I think we may see quite a bit of that at Duke as well. So I, the, yep, I, I think you're I, right. I'm, I think that document, it's the, the, the 2008 athletic um uh, plan. So the uh, I think it's it was called unbridled uh, optimism or something of that nature uh, was 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 really enlightening, um, and where where um, you know the the, uh, the the document talks about how well even at Duke they ceded control over the scheduling of of uh, of over their athlete schedules to TV executives. Which is an extraordinary, really, it's an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary admission that athletes are coming. You know, basketball players are coming back at two a.m. and then having to exactly. report to class at eight, and that's yeah. just it. it you, even at Duke, and and, they, and they, I think Duke benefits a little bit from the fact that it's not a big football school. Yeah, so that's probably right. It's it's a, a it, so 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 we're it was sort of insulated a little bit from you know from some of the. The, the the pressures that you feel at at, at some of the top uh, SEC uh, the football programs and 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 uh, you know the Big Ten programs uh, programs and so on. Right, and and that word you used, you know, unbridled, isn't that perfect? Uh, the document title. I mean, isn't that that's the very essence <laughs> yeah. at this point of big time college sport? It's just unbridled. The willingness to take <laughs> and demand in the interest of revenue is unbridled. Yeah, um, 
So, and, and I just want to, and I, the last thing I'll say is the story you described, you know, I mean, I have literally had the experience of having uh, an elite Duke athlete in my class have to give a presentation, you know, midway through the day, noonish, whatever time it was. And I went to bed the night before watching that athlete play on television. You know, I went to bed, but they were in another part of the country. They were going back. We were in, I think they were in East Lansing, Michigan, perhaps uh, at the time, right? When I went to bed and they were presenting in my class, you know, at noon or so the next day. So that kind of sums up what it means to have this sort of unbridled attitude to um, taking from college athletes. So with that, let me say, Jay Smith and Ted Tatos, thank you so very much for elucidating for me and for everyone what UNC tells us about the NCA sports system. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.